In the criminal justice system, it is the trial court judge that determines the punishment, the sentence. I'm Dan Ringer, and we'll talk about sentencing right now on The Law Works. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Closed captioning for The Law Works is made possible by a grant from the Monongalia County Bar Association to support legal information and education for all West Virginians. The Law Works is made possible by major grants from the Office of the West Virginia Attorney General and from Software Systems Incorporated, a West Virginia company established in 1975 which provides high-end support services, programming, and consulting for county government AS400 mid-range computer systems as well as PC-based systems, and by a grant from the West Virginia Bar Foundation. The West Virginia Bar Foundation the philanthropic organization for West Virginia's legal profession and justice system, promoting public knowledge of the law in West Virginia. judges determine what a sentence is to be in a criminal case. My guests are Judge Alan Motes of the 19th Judicial Circuit, that's Taylor and Barber Counties, and Judge Russell, Russell Clodges of the 17th Judicial Circuit, that's Monongahela County. Judge Motes, Judge Clodges, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. So, it's up to you guys as to what you do to somebody who's been convicted of a crime. You just do what you want to do, right? No, that's not really the way it works, uh, Dan. I know some people question, and I always talk to uh, jurors or other people when they come in and, and say people see in newspapers that somebody gets sentenced to a certain crime, somebody else for a certain crime, and do you just pull those numbers out of the air? And the answer is no, that for every uh, crime in West Virginia, the legislature has come up with a statutory penalty. So that's the framework we work within, is that statutory penalty that the legislature has enacted. Give me an example of a statutory penalty. What was it say, if you uh, steal $5, you go to jail for a year, or, or what? Well, sure. exactly, if you steal $5, you can go to jail up to a year. If you steal $5,000, you can go to jail, or prison, rather, for a term of not less than one or more than 10 years. Not less than one or more than 10, who decides if it's not less than one or it's as long as 10? Well, that's a good question. The legislature decided that the sentence is imprisonment in the state penitentiary for not less than one nor more than 10 years. That's an indeterminate sentence. That is the sentence that we're required by the law to impose in those cases. Whether they serve, well, they have to serve at least one year, and then after they've served one year, they're eligible for parole. And then it is up to the parole board to determine when and if they get out of prison before they've discharged or finished that sentence. So after one year, somebody looks at it and says, we'll let you out, and there are some conditions on that. And if they don't, you just stay there until as long as 10 years. Well, it, it can be. Sentencing is, is a little complicated, and there are different rules. So after that sentence, indeterminate sentence of one to 10, and there's two type sentences, 
indeterminate and That's determinant. Right. A determinant would be some crime such as uh, escape from prison. It has a determinate sentence up to five years, meaning that as a judge, we could give somebody one, two, three, four, or five years. That's a determinate sentence. The indeterminate of not less than one or more than 10, as Judge Claudius says, it means somebody has to serve that minimum of one year. The maximum they could be in prison is 10 years. However, there's other uh, factors that come into consideration. Good time. Every day somebody serves in prison, if they behave themselves, they get one day of good time. So theoretically, if they get the good time, they can completely discharge a sentence in five years, that one to 10. So you get a, a day credit off your sentence for every day you're a good prisoner. Correct. Or can. You yes. can. And if you mess up, you can lose good time credit. You can too. lose good time yeah. credit if you don't behave yourself, and that's incentive for people to behave themselves. And it's uh, the parole board is not just a one-time event. They look at you periodically while you're imprisoned. Yeah, they look at you initially at some point in time after the one year, and it's usually somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 months. And if a person doesn't make parole the first time, then they wait another year and they look at them again. Do you have, as the sentencing judge, do you have any input into the parole decision? Well, in a sense, we do. Uh, the parole board, uh, the president of the parole board will write us a letter telling us that inmates are eligible for parole and there's usually a questionnaire with that asking for our input. Um, my experience is that most judges don't provide input for various reasons. Uh, not the least of which is I'm advised that the parolees are made aware of what the judge's input is. So these things we see on TV about the guy getting out of prison then comes looking for the prosecutor, the defense attorney, and the judge, you're aware of those. Uh, the potential's there. I mean, that's one of the things I learned very early in my career, and that is most of the people that I sentenced to the penitentiary are going to get out one of these days. It sounds as if we're kind of joking about this a little bit, but these are very serious issues. Can be. I, I, I don't, don't know of any cases. I've only been practicing law for 36 years. So I don't know of any cases where somebody actually came looking for the judge, but it could happen. And we are becoming more and more security conscious. We are. Well, we are, and it's something that we have to be conscious of, but it's something that you cannot do your job being so overly conscious that you cannot function. Well, that's a question that I've always had. I think, Judge Rogers, I asked you that one time. What do you do when there's a high-profile person in front of you? You know there's a lot of public sympathy one way or the other. How do you handle that? Because you're an elected official, and you might like to keep your job well, for more than one term anyway. So how do you isolate yourself from that, or do you? Well, I think you have to try to isolate yourself. You cannot make decisions based on public sentiment. Uh, you have to make it based on the law, the facts, and what you believe is in the best interest of uh, the community, the person who's before you. And I think when you do that, things are going to work out the way they should. But you're subject to a number of influences in addition to public sentiment. Certainly. The legislature's told you one thing, what you're going to do. Yeah, we've already been given guidance from the legislature when they set out the sentences or the options that we have available to us for sentencing. Uh, in any case where somebody's convicted of a crime, we gather information or information is provided to us to aid us in sentencing decisions. Uh, we have probation officers who do pre-sentence investigations, provide reports to us with information concerning 
that person, their background, their criminal history, other factors that we might want to consider or should consider in sentencing. Um, uh, most counties have victim witness assistance coordinators who solicit victim impact statements. So very often we have a statement or statements from victims in cases that are factors that we can consider. Uh, we're now in West Virginia moving towards using um, what are called evidence-based practices or using assessment tools to evaluate uh, criminal defendants to determine their risk for recidivism, their risk for returning to the system uh, later and trying to base sentencing decisions on, on, on those types of issues or actually trying to determine whether or not they're suitable for uh, community-based programs as opposed to, say, prison. We're talking about sentencing in criminal cases. My guests are uh, Judge Alan Motes of the 19th Judicial Circuit, that's Taylor and Barber counties, and Judge Russell Clodges of the 17th Judicial Circuit, that's Monongahela County. Assessment tools, what, what, what kind of things do you assess and how do you assess them? Well, the, um, the new tool that we're using, and, and it's not new as, as far as the country's concerned, it's something that we are, are just starting to use. The Supreme Court mandated as of September 1 was going to be used in every felony case. And uh, it uh, stands for uh, the level of service case management uh, uh, inventory. The probation officers will sit down with uh, somebody who uh, has been convicted or pled guilty to some felony offense and they go through a, a, a various list of background, criminal history, their thought processes, so just all kinds of things. And it'll actually come up with a, uh, an assessment as far as whether this person is a low risk, medium risk, moderate or high or very high. And then it also- Risk of reoffending. Re and it'll also then list what kind of needs that person has. So we know uh, as judges whether that person is amenable to being kept in the community on probation or a day report uh, center, or whether they need something more, or whether they are such such a danger to the community that they, that they should be incarcerated. I have heard it said often and recently <clears throat> that we tend to lock up two kinds of people, people we're afraid of and people we're mad at. Do we really differentiate people like that or is there more to it than that? I think there's a lot more to it than that. I hear that all the time. I think that's a kind of a catch-all, cliche type thing. There's, there's just a lot more to it. Um, judges have to have discretion and it's a matter that I don't think we are mad at anybody we're locking up as judges. We're trying to decide what's in the best interest in this particular case for the community. What does this person, the defendant, need? And that's the way decisions are made for sentencing, not am I angry at this person? That doesn't even enter into the sentencing That's not equation. to say that you might not be angry at somebody. Well, I don't think we're angry. You can't uh, take out as judges that you don't like certain types of behavior, no type criminal behavior, and some is more, is more egregious than others. But uh, as judges, we have to try to step back and not let that personal kind of uh, thought process influence that sentence. You really do take that seriously, don't you? Yes, well, that's probably one of the more serious decisions that we have to make, yes. Judges occupy a very special position in our society. And you know, honestly, I don't know how it comes about, but it has come about and I think it serves society well. 
When you become a judge, you become something different, something apart. We call, we call you your honor. Uh, when we're in the courtroom, uh, we don't joke lightly with you. We don't poke fun at you as we might in any other business situation. You sit there, you wear distinctive clothing, you wear a black robe or at least a dark colored robe generally. Uh, and we are very deferential in addressing you. And when you say something, most lawyers accept that as being the way it is. And that's true. And you enjoy that? <laughs> well, you know, it's not a matter of enjoying it, but I think it's a matter that that's, that's one of the cornerstones of our society. And judges, we don't have police forces, we don't have armies, and, but there needs to be that kind of respect for our system, not particularly for us as individuals, but for the position as judge, because if we didn't have that respect, our whole framework of our uh, justice system and democracy would soon cease to exist. That's a key part of our society. I don't remember who the Chief Justice was. It might have been John Jay. The President said, Justice, Chief Justice so-and-so has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Right. And you don't have the power to exactly. enforce it. You have to depend on the rest of the government to enforce it. That's right, right. and respect for the system. So when you're deciding a sentence, the rest of the government does have some input. Uh, we talked about the legislature, but the Certainly. executive branch of government also has input into how sentences are handed oh, out. And, and it's largely a determination when you think of the executive. It's, it's obviously, I mean, the police agencies are part of that, so what they charge people with, what people, you know, what offenses are originally charged. Prosecutors have uh, discretion in that regard with regard to, regard to what charges they present to the grand jury, what charges are indicted. And then what charges people actually end up pleading guilty to. I mean, we may have a three-count indictment, we may have a 20-count indictment, but when it comes time to take a plea, uh, the plea may be to one count of a three-count indictment or five counts of a 20-count indictment. So already by then, they have made decisions that limit our sentencing authority or our sentencing power with regard to that individual. Yeah, you really don't have the power to convict something, somebody of something that they haven't been charged with. No, no. no. We and, have no authority to bring people before us. It's whatever the prosecutors or the police bring in. We are more reacting to what uh, the executive branch is doing. And very often, and actually in most cases, the prosecutor has some recommendation uh, as to what they believe is an appropriate sentence in the case, as does the defense attorney. So there are factors that we consider. Now, are they limitations? Not necessarily, because we're not bound by those, except under very rare circumstances where a plea is offered as a binding plea. But then we have the discretion whether or not to take that. We, we've said a lot of things in here. We've talked a lot about pleas. Uh, one of the first cases I was ever involved in, uh, the defendant pled guilty to the particular offense, and I asked his family, would you like to write letters in support of him that we can offer to the judge? And I used the word convicted in the letter that I wrote to them, and they responded, he wasn't convicted of anything, he pled guilty. And that's not exactly right. <laughs> Uh, now, they're told when they enter a guilty plea that that's, a, that's a, the equivalent of a conviction. So you can be convicted basically in two ways. You can admit that you did it and an order of judgment is entered and you right. are convicted, or you can have a trial. Exactly. Be found guilty by a jury. And if the jury says you're guilty, the truth of the matter is you're guilty whether you did it or not. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting to get letters from family members uh, pending sentencing after somebody's pled guilty. And basically, the import of the letters is that they didn't do it, or the defendant didn't do it. Yes, I have had to instruct people not to say that in those letters. Somebody didn't instruct them in the ones I got. But that, that's kind of a denial. And 
I've never been a judge, but I would think a judge would look that and, and just almost discount that letter because they're denying the reality of the situation. So, in that. And part of the plea process, and, and a lot of reason that is given for people to plead guilty is, is, is acceptance of responsibility. And acceptance of responsibility is a factor that judges will consider in the sentencing process. Probation uh, boards look at that too uh, when they're looking at an inmate. An inmate may go oh, into prison definitely. saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. But when they come up for probation, they had best come to grips with the fact that a lot of people and key people believe that they did. Sure, I think that's oh. one of the big things the parole board looks at is to see whether the person is contrite, whether they have accepted responsibility, even if they didn't accept it in the first place, whether they've changed their position, their attitude, their thought process during the time period that they have served in uh, prison. We're talking about sentencing in criminal cases. My guests are Judge Alan Motes of Barber <coughs> and Taylor Counties and Judge Russell Clodges of Monongalia County. You're a judge in two counties and, and Judge Clodges, you're a judge in one county. How does that happen? The legislature uh, decides uh, the circuits, as I said before, there are 31 circuits in West Virginia. Right now there are 70 circuit judges, so the legislature makes the division based upon the population in the, in the counties, the uh, caseload, and every uh, eight years they can review that and change boundaries or whatever they want to do. The next time that will be able to be changed is 2015. West Virginia has at least some areas that are very rural and, and kind of sparsely populated, and those Correct. counties tend to be grouped together Correct. in a judicial circuit from time to time. Well, what are the practical influences of, of sentencing somebody? I know years and years ago, I said I was never a judge. That's not technically true. I was a city municipal court judge for a very short period of time one time. And the instructions I got from the mayor of that town was, for heaven's sakes, don't send anyone to jail. We can't afford it. So I knew then that cost was a real issue in how you punish somebody. And in a municipal court, that's not bad because you're not going to see somebody who seriously injured anyone else. What you're dealing with is speeding tickets and things like that. And you don't send people to jail for that. But how do those things affect you when you're looking at a defendant there trying to decide what to do with him or her? Well, I think they affect you to a certain extent, particularly for the uh, person prior to the time he's convicted, pretrial things, because the county has to pick up the cost for anybody who's in jail, and it's a uh, little less than $50 a day. If you have very many people in jail, that's, that's a big cost to a county, so that's something we are uh, conscious of all the time, but it's not something that you can let drive what's in the best interest safety-wise for your community. After somebody is uh, convicted, we have prison overcrowding in West Virginia. That was a big topic in this last uh, session of the legislature when that uh, bill was passed called the Justice Reinvestment uh, Bill. It was about whether we're going to build a new prison, whether we can make some changes to uh, try to cut down on the costs. So that's something as judges we right. have to be conscious of. Well, I know that's uh, that's true at the state level. It's also true at the federal level. Uh, sure. Attorney General uh, Eric Holder recently released a memo uh, addressed to that, telling the U.S. Attorney's uh, offices, "Don't, in, in in essence, don't try to send so many people to prison. We just can't afford to do that." And right. some have suggested that we could build jails and prisons on every street corner, and still we wouldn't have enough to send everybody to jail that perhaps deserved some time. Yeah, and that's. A big issue, and as, as Alan indicated, it's a big issue in, in West Virginia right now with the fact that our, our prisons are overcrowded. Uh, 
they're way overcrowded and it's spilling over into the regional jail systems which were built just to house pretrial inmates or inmates that are serving misdemeanor sentences. Now we have probably half the population in the regional jails or inmates that need to be in the, the state prison system but can't get there. Need to be because that's the, what the that's sentence what the sentence requires, yeah. And there are in the regional jails, and the regional jails are not structured to offer the programs uh, that are necessary you know, for people that are in the system, the prison system. In fact, they, don't even have, they can't even do what they need to do to be eligible for parole when they're in the regional jails. I, I, we've alluded to it a couple of times. We probably ought to be a little more specific about it. If you are convicted of a relatively minor crime, that is a misdemeanor crime mm -hmm. with sentences up to a year, the, if you are incarcerated, you're incarcerated in a regional jail. Right. But if you are convicted of a felony, the idea is that you are a more serious criminal, that you need some rehabilitation, some perhaps education, counseling, right. that occurs in prison. And we have some of those around the state and we have maximum and minimum and right. mm -hmm. security prisons. But if you go to a regional jail, you're just basically warehoused uh, with regard to those kinds of programs. And that's been the, the problem up until when uh, Prentytown, or not Prentytown, but uh, Salem recently was converted from juvenile to adult prison. We had 5,000 prison beds in West Virginia, but we had about uh, 7,000 inmates sentenced to prison. So that extra 2,000, they were just, as I've said, backed up and stacked up in our regional jails. Double, triple, quadruple bunking in uh, those cells and creates problems for the, uh, the regional jails and the staff. And Plus, they don't get the services that they would get uh, if they were in prison, and that's been one of the big problems. And, so that's one of the pressures that's on judges to decide, are we going to send them there if they just are going to sit in the regional jail and be paroled from the regional jail? Can we keep some of those people in the community? And that was one of the overriding uh, uh, considerations in that uh, justice reinvestment bill that the governor put forth that was passed by the legislature this past year. So what does that mean? Well, as far as what the consequences are going to be? Yes. Some of the things judges or Judge Clodges was talking about to uh, beef up the community corrections day report centers, uh, the more evidence-based uh, sentencing uh, plans, this uh, assessment, this LSCMI uh, level of service case management system where we try to look to see exactly what the risk is, what the services are for each individual uh, inmate and to hopefully just utilize everything at our uh, means to try to determine who should actually be in jail or prison. So you, and I think that determining who should be or where they should be is, is, has kind of become a, a crucial break point and we're kind of in the middle of that right now and that is looking at individual defendants, looking at the nature of the offense committed and then looking at them and deciding whether or not they can be dealt with safely in the community as opposed to in the prison system. Uh, when we talk about the LSCMI, you take a low-risk person, if you take a low-risk person and put them in prison, they're going to come out worse than when they went in because unfortunately prisons are schools and they are schools for crime. And uh, so you're, you're trying to evaluate those people that they're better served in the community safely. You're evaluating those people who need to be in prison and certainly there are people who need to be in prison. I don't think there's anybody that's going to argue that, that point with, with any of us. And, and the other 
thing is the other driving force is the fact that many of the people that are in prison or go to prison and get out end up coming back. If you recall earlier, I said most everybody that goes to prison gets out. That's a fact. Well, the unfortunate fact is that most of the people who go to prison and get out end up doing something to go back, either violating the conditions of their parole or committing new crimes. And so one of the focuses on justice reinvestment is to try to deal with those people to try to see if you can solve the problem of recidivism or repeat offenders because uh, that's a large part of the prison overcrowding is repeat offenders. So the justice reinvestment is kind of working on both ends. They're working on the parole end, the people that are on parole trying to increase the supervision, trying to tie them into community services earlier or better uh, to try to keep them from falling back into the old habits that got them there in the first place. And of course, when we do it on the front end by the people that we place on probation or use community services, home incarceration, other community-based services, drug courts, problem-solving courts, mental health courts, uh, veterans courts, uh, different things that are focused on addressing background issues with nonviolent offenders to try to treat those issues so that they won't commit crimes again. And again, you, you know, drugs are a big problem in that regard. With regard to these programs, evidence so far is that these programs are wonderfully successful. The recidivism rates are lower. The cost to the society is much, much lower than locking somebody in a box for a period of years. Judge Alan Motes, Judge Russell Clodges, thank you, gentlemen, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you also for being with us. On behalf of the Law Works, I'm Dan Ringer. Good evening. If you would like to suggest a topic for a future The Law Works show, or if you're a school teacher and would like to receive a DVD of this show for classroom use, send us an email to thelawworks at comcast.net or visit us on Facebook. On The Law Works website at thelawworks.org, you'll find a listing of recent The Law Works programs, additional information about this show's topic, and video of this and recent shows. You can also find The Law Works programs on YouTube and iTunes. The Law Works is produced in cooperation with the Office of the West Virginia Attorney General, the West Virginia Bar Foundation, the Mountain State Bar, the Monongalia County Bar Association, and the West Virginia University College of Law. The Law Works is made possible by major grants from the Office of the West Virginia Attorney General, and from Software Systems Incorporated, a West Virginia company established in 1975 which provides high-end support services, programming, and consulting for county government AS400 mid-range computer systems as well as PC-based systems, and by a grant from the West Virginia Bar Foundation. The West Virginia Bar Foundation, the philanthropic organization for West Virginia's legal profession and justice system, promoting public knowledge of the law in West Virginia. Additional support for the law works is provided by the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting.